Let's look at verses 4 through 6 together. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Well, we're starting off this section today with the great truth that there is only one God. Any other claim is just a phony. Any other claim out there about some other God or a multiplicity of gods, it's a lie. It is just a lie, regardless of what the world says. And there are many people out there with many different gods, no matter what they say. That's a lie. This is the doctrinal basis that Paul is setting forth here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit as to why meat sacrificed to idols is nothing. Because there is but one God. There aren't other gods. There's but one God. And though people make all sorts of claims, you see it here in the verses 4 and 5, there are many idols, there are so-called gods, there are many gods and many lords out there that people make up out of their own wicked fallen imaginations, that there are many gods out there who receive sacrifices who aren't real. But there's just one God. Verse 4, there's no such thing as an idol in the world. There is no such thing as a true competing deity to the one true God. But God is God alone, isn't He? And there is but one God. There's an amazing statement in verse 6. It's a very early creed in the early church of how they articulated the nature of God. Paul starts off by saying, There is but one God, the Father. And from Him all things are. From whom are all things. This means that the Father is the creator of everything. The Father's not a creature. This is one of the most fundamental distinctions that anybody coming to the truth, in fact, anybody even approaching the truth needs to understand there's a distinction between God who is creator and each of us who is a creature. A very big distinction. He's the creator of all things. And it says that for the Father, we exist. For whom we exist. He is our purpose for living. The Father not only created all things, but He has now set us before Him so that we might live for Him, that we might serve Him. It's for Him that we exist. Yet Paul doesn't stop with the person of God the Father. He goes on to say, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Look how strikingly similar these statements are about the Father and about the Son. About the Father, it was said, for whom are all things. About the Son, it says, by whom are all things. You know what this means? The Son is the Creator. 
Just as the Father is the Creator, so is the Son, the Creator of all things. He's not a creature like we are. There is that same distinction of Creator and creature when it comes to the Son. It says of the Father for whom we exist and of the Son through whom we exist. So just as the Father is our purpose for living, so is the Son. May all that we do be done in Jesus, the Lord. Isn't this amazing? He's talking about two persons who are creator, who are God, worth serving. Isn't this amazing? There are some people out there you'll talk to who will say, the Trinity was invented in the fourth century. A bunch of guys got together with big hats and long gowns, and there's incense everywhere, and they devised this great doctrine which has tricked the whole world. Paul was a Trinitarian. You just read it. The Father and the Son, distinct persons, yet one God. There is but one God. And here we're seeing the Father and the Son, and of course we have the testimony of Scripture that declares the Holy Spirit is God also. Yet there is but one God. Paul saw no contradiction in speaking of these persons. Two persons, Father and Son, but one God, one Lord. He saw no contradiction with that. Of course, later on, there were councils, the Council of Nicaea and others, uh, the Council um, of, it starts with an A, and it's a big word, and now I'm not thinking of it, but uh, these councils that have, that shows you how much emphasis I put on councils, doesn't it? Um, But they came together, these believers came together to articulate these doctrines that we are certainly introduced to in Scripture. Athanasius, Athanasian Creed, there it is, uh, that the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. They are great articulations of Christian doctrine, but they are not inventions of Christian doctrine. They are articulations, not inventions, because we have in God's Word the presentation of one God, one God alone, who has revealed Himself simultaneously as Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity. So this is a great creed, isn't it, for the early church? A great theological statement, a very different statement, whether the person in the church came from a Jewish background or came from a Greek background. This was a new statement of faith, a radically new statement of faith that changed the way they approached all religion. And Paul says, this is our doctrinal basis for denying that an idol is anything. Idols are nothing. There is no other God. But look at the startling phrase in verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. What does he mean here? Well, of course, in the world, there are people who don't know God. There are people in the world who don't have this knowledge. They don't have saving faith. But Paul here is making reference to the church. He's making reference to men and women in the church. And he says, not all of them have this knowledge. It's not that they didn't have saving faith in the one true God. They certainly did. But Paul's making a statement about the effect that this knowledge has had on their lives. Not all new converts in the church had the freedom that stemmed from this knowledge. Remember, Paul is bringing this up. He's bringing up this doctrinal statement as it pertains to idols, saying, an idol is nothing. You are free. On paper, objectively, you are free to eat meat offered to idols because idols are nothing. Look at our doctrine. 
But not all believers had that knowledge in the sense that they didn't feel free. They came out of backgrounds that were closely associated with these idols. Many of the pagans in that church used to serve many, many idols, used to worship many false gods. And they did not have the freedom that some did when it came to eating meat from an animal that was sacrificed to one of those gods. They were still tripped up by their former association with the idol. And this is a very real struggle that takes place deep inside. Look at verse 7 as a whole with me again. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. That word there for defiled is the word polluted. We perhaps have other words now that are more common than pollution. Pollution was a buzzword for a a really long time. Um, But we know the concept. We can easily pollute the air around here because the air gets trapped, doesn't it? And, And it's polluted. It's hard to breathe sometimes and your eyes get all red because of the inversion that takes place in our valley. This is what is being said happens to a weak person's conscience when eating food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. The Christian, not calling into question that person's salvation, that truly born-again Christian, his conscience becomes polluted by engaging in that activity because his former associations are still so strong. He still has the smell on his clothes from the last time they sacrificed an animal to the god Diana or whatever god it was, and now he's in the church and he can't stomach the fact that anybody would ever be associated with that at any level. I hope you can start to make connections as to how this plays out in our lives today because we don't have a lot of people sacrificing animals to idols. I'm sure they're out there. I don't want to meet them if they're there, okay, if you know about them. Just keep that to yourself. But there are lots of things that we were associated with before we became believers. And as we become believers and as we get serious about Christ, we can't imagine ever being associated at any level whatsoever with some of those past things. So I want to spend the rest of the message today talking about the priority of love in all of this. Paul has clearly laid out here in verses 4 through 6 that we have rights by our knowledge, by our, by our faith in what is true, by the truth itself. We have freedom to exercise our rights in all sorts of ways. There are rights by knowledge, but there's a priority of love in the church. And Remember, as we discussed last week, knowledge must serve the cause of love. Love doesn't serve knowledge. Knowledge serves love. Let's read verses 8 through 13 as a whole. Paul writes, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble... 
I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Let's discuss the scenario in Corinth in a little more detail. Again, as we think about idol food, this was an animal sacrifice to a false god. So, for argument's sake, let's just say a goat, okay? A goat is sacrificed to a god. Now, this could be done in a variety of ways. In that culture, it was very commonplace for these types of sacrifices to take place. It wasn't a -a once-a-year thing like Yom Kippur for the Jews when they had the Day of Atonement, and it was this big annual focus. It was much more commonplace than that. There were idol sacrifices happening quite frequently, and there were multiple ways they could go about consuming the goat after it was sacrificed. They could have a large number of people there, throw the goat on the fire, and then afterwards they could take the meat off and share it among people right then and there, sort of like a buffet, a goat idol buffet. Don't, don't take that as a restaurant idea. Uh, it, it might do well, I don't know, but um, they would have like a restaurant-style meal there together. And in fact, many of these sacrifices turned into larger community events where it would be like going to a restaurant and you would all be there mingling together. Now, if there was meat left over from that, or if there wasn't a meal that took place on the spot, that meat would be taken sometimes and sold in a market. And Paul gets to this point in chapter 10, where you might be in the market looking for some good goat meat for your goat meal that evening, and you see that there's some goat meat right there, and you are wondering if that was sacrificed to an idol. How does a Christian approach that subject? Well, we'll get to that in chapter 10, because the focus that Paul has here in chapter 8 is that first scenario, where you're either at a temple for an idol or in the precinct of a temple where a sacrifice has been made and people have come together. Are you to be there? Are you to dine while you're there? Or is this sinful? That's the matter at hand. Look at verse 10 with me again. He says, if someone sees you, Dining in an idol's temple. So you see, this isn't purchasing meat in the market. This is actually dining there in the temple or in the precinct surrounding. And he says there also in verse 10, you who have knowledge, you who have knowledge. This is, of course, the knowledge presented in verse 6, that there is no God but one, God the Father, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is only one God, and so you are free from, with your knowledge, you have rights, you have freedoms in your knowledge to go about consuming this in that place. But not all people had that knowledge, remember? Some had a crisis of conscience being associated with that food. They had not experienced the freedom. They weren't given the freedom in their conscience to partake in that particular meal. So let's talk about consciences for a moment. I want to let you know that individual consciences matter and differ and are meant to harmonize. When we think about Christians coming together in the church, individual consciences matter. They do. They're not just some flippant thing that, you know, is something we'll talk about if we ever get to it. They matter. But they also differ. (laughs) And that's what we're dealing with in our text today, consciences that differ. And thirdly, I hope the point that we are able to soak into our hearts today is that they are meant to harmonize in the church. As Christians come together with our individual consciences that matter and differ, we are to harmonize. That's the big idea in chapter 8. Let me give you a definition of conscience. This is particular to this passage, the way Paul is using it in chapter 8. 
The conscience is the spirit-informed moral center that guides us in matters of opinions. The conscience is the spirit-informed moral center that guides us in matters of opinions. Let me emphasize two aspects of that definition. The first is that it is the spirit-informed moral center. We're talking about Christian consciences here, not the world and what they think is right or wrong. We're talking about Christians whose consciences have been molded and shaped and informed by the Holy Spirit, meaning from the Word of God and from the wise counsel of the people of God who represent God's Word as faithfully as they can. We're talking about the Spirit-informed aspect, and we're also talking about matters of opinion. We're not talking about all issues. We're talking about a limited number of issues, issues that Scripture regards as opinions. So, you can't have a couple of people walking into the church claiming to be Christians, one saying, yeah, I believe Jesus died for our sins, and the other person saying, no, He didn't die for our sins, and we all just say, well, matter of opinion, agree to disagree. That's not what we're talking about. Scripture is clear, absolutely clear, what the gospel is, and a variety of other issues. The Scripture is absolutely clear on these. But when it comes to personal Christian living in areas that aren't black and white, is it right, is it wrong? But as far as we can tell from Scripture, this really seems to be a gray area. We rely on our conscience, our spirit-informed moral center that comes into play when talking about opinions. Christian consciences discern holy living in these things as the Holy Spirit works in us. And what is He doing? What is the Holy Spirit doing as He's informing our consciences? Because you might start to think, okay, you've got Joe who says, yeah, I can eat meat that was, had been sacrificed to idols, no big deal. And then you've got Ted over here that says, no, that's sin. Do they both have a Spirit-informed conscience? Yes even though they differ. Yes, they do. Because the Holy Spirit is so involved in your life as a Christian that He's protecting you in so many ways. He's binding your conscience or He's loosing your conscience in in so many ways that we don't fully understand, but He's protecting us. He's working in us. He's causing us to grow. And this person, who perhaps had no former association with an idol, what I call him, Joe, uh, that guy, he might be able to go eat and he's totally fine. He's not affected at all. But someone like Ted maybe was immersed in that type of living, and if he goes back there, he's going to stumble. His conscience is bound by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit protecting him, helping him to grow in his Christian life. And the Scriptures talk about these brothers and sisters as being either strong or weak in these realms, the realm of opinions. And this is, of course, based on the effect of knowledge as the Holy Spirit has applied it to our lives. So let me give you some modern examples of this. When I was in high school, I got my first vehicle when I turned 16, a 1996 Ford Ranger, extended cab. And the extended cab um, had not seats that faced forward, but the seats that folded in from the sides, you could face the middle, uh, which might not even be legal anymore, I don't know. But um, I, I saw that and I thought, well, that's great that it has that space, not for my friends, but for my humongous subwoofers, because I listened to lots of rap music. And you're sitting there looking at me like, yeah, you fit into that culture, great. Uh, Country boy from mid-Missouri. Yeah, um, well, I did, okay? Uh, First time I got pulled over, I was blasting Mike Jones, and some of you know what that means. 
Tyler does, uh, and the rest of you don't. But um, I was immersed in the rap world. I wasn't a believer yet, and here I am in my, in my cool Ford pickup listening to this rap music. When I became a believer, I found out there was such a thing as Christian rap. And I didn't say, oh, great. I said, yikes, rap's not Christian. Rap can never be Christian. I listened to rap. I was, I was all about rap, and I heard all sorts of things from rap music. No way that could ever be Christian. I remember being introduced to one of the most popular Christian rap artists by a friend of mine, and hearing it, and even though it was perfectly fine, in fact, it was better than the vast majority of things played on the radio, Christian radio, I heard it and I thought, I just can't do it. I absolutely could not do it. My conscience was bound. Now, since then, of course, things have changed, and I listen to all sorts of music, um, but for a time, certainly, my conscience was bound in that way. Undoubtedly, you know of believers who lived a life of drunkenness before they came to know the Lord, and they get saved, a radical regeneration, conversion. They went from being the town drunk to now they're Christian. They've even got the cross necklace to prove it, and they can't imagine that any Christian would ever let one drop of alcohol touch his tongue. Because in that person's mind, those two things just don't go together. Alcohol defined his former life, and now as a believer, there's just no way he could be in the same room as it. It happens to many people. Perhaps in our culture, someone grew up hearing about the dangers of coffee, and coffee is bad. And then that person gets saved and comes to a church like ours and sees a coffee bar. Well, have a big sign above it that says the devil's juice. <laughs> Perhaps someone from a life of sales was involved in all sorts of evil, wicked, sinful sales techniques to sell people things that they didn't need and to basically extort their money from them and has to leave the life of sales after becoming a Christian because he just cannot be associated with that anymore. A friend of mine from Chicago said they had a uh, a pretty famous horse track up there where people would go and play the ponies quite regularly. And it's a place where a lot of people go just to watch for entertainment value. But for people who used to gamble on a regular basis, they couldn't even go back there as Christians just to watch because they would be tempted, they felt, to gamble again and just couldn't put the two things together how as a Christian he could even find himself there. So there are so many ways that this can play out where because of your former associations, now as a Christian, your conscience is bound by the Holy Spirit, and you don't have freedom in certain areas, and it's good. It's good because it's God in you, God working in you. There's not one better than the other. This is just the way it is. And what we find in our text today is that exercising our consciences, perhaps you're free in a lot of areas where you're not bound in those areas. Well, exercising your conscience in those areas is fine and great and good, but let me tell you something, it is not what is of first importance. That is not the most important thing. What is of first importance is loving harmony among God's people. As our consciences all come together that matter and differ, we are to prioritize harmony in love. That means there is no room for self-serving. The Corinthians had made everything about their own rights. Do I have the right to do this? Do I have the right to do that? And just focusing on themselves. What can I do for myself that will please me? That was their view. Your conscience was not given to you for self-serving. 
And that should not be your approach in the church. There's also no room for looking down on one another. Look at verse 8 with me again. Paul says very clearly, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do eat, nor the better if we do eat, or do not eat. We're neither the worse if we don't eat, or the better if we do eat. Whether your conscience says you're free to partake of food offered to idols or not, you're not better off one way or the other. Corinthians had made it all about class and rank. Remember back in chapter 1, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and they picked teams. They chose sides, and they were divided as a church. And Which team is best? Which team is smartest? Which team is wisest? In this area, you can see how the Corinthians would take this and say, well, I am of the strong because I have knowledge. I know. And what does that do? It creates a fundamental nasty division in the church, doesn't it? It shouldn't be there. Thomas Schreiner says this, the knowers, and this is his word for the strong, the knowers may have argued that it was better to eat idle food since it fostered relationships with unbelievers and did not cut them off from society. Okay, that, that's a good point. For someone who had the freedom to do that in their conscience, they were free to go to that place and take the gospel with them. That's But then he goes on to say, but according to Paul, there is no spiritual advantage if one does eat. Since food is inconsequential, there is no room for boasting in one's liberty. There is no place for thinking that one is wiser or more mature if one feels free to eat. So even though, yes, with a free conscience, you perhaps might be able to go to more places and do more things for the sake of the gospel, and I I hope that's your motivation, just know it doesn't make you better. You're not a higher class of Christian. You're not a better Christian. There is no innate spiritual advantage whether you do this or that when it comes to matters of opinions. But whether you do or whether you don't, do all to the glory of God. Sound familiar? That's 1 Corinthians 10. It's coming up uh, as Paul's on this topic for a few chapters. So there's no room for self-serving and no room for looking down on another Christian. And we find here, too, that it's your duty to do what you can to keep your brother or sister from stumbling. It is your duty as a Christian to keep your brothers and sisters from stumbling. So perhaps you've entered into this world of freedom. You have freedom in your conscience. That doesn't mean you can go wherever you want and do whatever you want, whenever you want. There's still a fence around your freedom, and that's the fence of love. Your freedom has to be checked and reined in by love. Look at verse 9. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Your liberty has a spatial limitation. Your liberty cannot go to such a place that would cause a brother or sister to stumble. You want to be a building block to your brother, not a stumbling block to your brother. This means you have to be vigilant in the way that you live because your influence can ruin your fellow Christian. Look down at verse 11 with me. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. You have the capacity to ruin a brother or a sister by being used in this way, to open him or her up to something that goes against their conscience. That word there for ruin is the word destroyed. It's a very strong word. It means to be destroyed. 
Remember, what is the Holy Spirit doing, binding our consciences? He's protecting us, isn't He? He's protecting us from destruction. So if you come along and work not with the Spirit, but against the Spirit, and pull someone into an activity that the Holy Spirit has not loosed them to do, you're going to ruin your brother. You're going to ruin your sister. You are to be a building block, not a stumbling block. It says, too, in this passage that you can wound his or her conscience. That's the word for strike. Every other time it's used in the New Testament, it's talking about a physical beating. You can beat up on your fellow Christian's conscience. Heaven forbid. You have the ability to influence fellow Christians to act against their conscience. And we have to be on guard for this, each one of us. Look at verse 10 with me again. This is the exact scenario. If someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Why would we not want his conscience to be strengthened? Because it would be strengthened through his own reasoning, his own fallen desires. It was not strengthened by the Holy Spirit. It was strengthened through the influence of another human. We never want to play that part in someone's life. Because acting against conscience is sinful. If you act against your conscience in the area of opinions, you're sinning. Did you know that Scripture teaches this? Romans 14. It'll be up on the board. Romans 14, 22 and 23. The faith which you have... Have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, these are two different scenarios in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. They're both talking about eating. In Romans 14, it's the brother that says, I'm a vegetarian, and all Christians should be vegetarian. I can't imagine eating meat. And the brother saying, uh, <laughs> I like meat, <laughs> right? Um, which is where perhaps all of us would fall. The brother who had no, uh, had no conscience issue with eating meat. Well, did you catch what was said there at the end? Look at verse 23 again. Let's put it up there again, Walker. The end of verse 23, very important statement. It says that whatever is not done from faith is sin. That means... Two Christians could be eating a goat burger. (laughs) One of them is sinning and the other one's not. Because one of them has his conscience strengthened by the Holy Spirit that it's fine. It's fine to do such a thing. And the other, if his conscience has been bound by the Spirit, if he's not doing it from faith, but he's doing it because everyone else is doing it, or if he's doing it for whatever reason, outside of God loosening his conscience, it is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. We have to be so aware of how God has designed us and shaped us and molded us with our consciences. John MacArthur said, God confines His spiritual children by conscience. As they grow in knowledge and maturity, the limits of conscience are expanded. We should never expand our actions and habits before our conscience permits it, and we should never encourage, either directly or indirectly, anyone else to do that. If you're doing something and you feel dirty doing it, even though you know it's an opinion, it's a doubtful thing, it's not black and white in Scripture, like picking up some meat from the market that was offered to an idol, 
If you can't do that with a clear conscience, don't do it. Because for you, it is sin to do it. Whatever is not from faith is sin. And bound consciences are not to be wounded by other Christians. Very serious matter. Look at our text, verse 12. It says, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You sin against Christ when you do this. So think of the guys, maybe there's a group of Christian guys who are going to, uh, to a place. I mean, I know when I first became a believer, um, movie rental places were still a thing. And in some rural parts of Missouri, you can still find like a movie gallery or aardvark video or these weird names that they have for these rental stores. Well, a lot of Christians did not have clear consciences walking into a, a movie rental place. Who knows what you're in there for? There's all kinds of smut in there, and who knows? It gives the appearance of evil. I might be tempted to get one of those videos, on and on and on. So their consciences were bound. Now, imagine back in that day, a group of Christians who were getting ready to to go off and maybe watch a movie that night, and they stop by the video rental, and three of the people get out, and the other one stays in the car. You're about to have an awkward conversation, aren't you? (laughs) It's kind of awkward. But what if those Christians say, oh, man, don't worry about that. Come on in. It'll be fine. Come on in. It'll be great. We're here with you. Don't worry about it. What are you doing? You're pressuring someone to go against their conscience, aren't you? Now, there are all sorts of applications for this, and there are various degrees of all these things, but we have to be sensitive toward this. We have to be sensitive toward our fellow believers' consciences. Because Christians are one with Christ, and when you sin against them, you sin against Him, don't you? It is sinful for you to influence a fellow Christian to act against his conscience. It's not about knowledge, but it's about love. And if we elevate knowledge to a place where it eats up love, we're sinning. Knowledge has to serve the cause of love, but we can't use knowledge to squelch love. Now, there's a place for study. I mean, it, certainly there's a time and place to sit and talk through certain issues. So perhaps the brother who can't go into the movie store, or the movie theater, I guess, would probably be uh, more relevant for today. There, if that brother's willing or sister, you can sit down, talk about it, talk it out. Maybe that person's never thought it through before. That's fine. But if you elevate that to a place and say, you're wrong for withholding fellowshipping with us in the movie theater, or we're going to mock you, we're going to make fun of you, or we're going to pressure you. What are you doing? You're wounding a conscience. His conscience is bound, and you're sitting there slugging away at it. Don't do that. Don't do it. Our consciences are God-given, and we are to work with the Spirit, not against the Spirit. So think about it when it comes to this food that had come from an idol sacrifice. Is it objectively rational to reject that food? Since we know that idols are nothing and there's no such thing as, a, as another God, is it rational objectively to reject a goat burger? <laughs> a good goat burger? Uh, maybe like the best thing, it tastes like a hamburger. Um, no, is it, is, it rationally, is it rational to reject it? Well, no, it's not. But notice that Paul doesn't say, those people are irrational, let's educate them. Paul says, let's prioritize the protection of their conscience. Isn't that just amazing? He doesn't say, let's do a study and teach them so that way we can all do, just do the same thing. He says, no, nah, let's leave room for conscience sake and show love. 
Prioritize protection of the conscience over and against informing. It's an amazing thought. So our resolution, therefore, as Christians, must be to care for one another in even extreme ways. Look at verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. I want us to close with uh, some thoughts on how this plays out individually and corporately. How this plays out for you as an individual Christian living this life, and how it plays out in the context of a local church, and how we can make decisions together corporately. When it comes to you individually, communication and submission are the two words you need to know. Communication and submission. We have to be communicating to one another when issues arise that perhaps strike our conscience the wrong way. Just thinking about your individual relationships, again, we're not to the corporate side of things yet, but just with your friends in the church, you're invited to do something, this or that. Communication and submission are key. You're constantly sharing and learning, sharing about yourself, where you are, learning from others about where they are. And submission in the sense that when you approach these issues, you don't come into it with the mindset that you have to have your way. Isn't that nice when two people enter a conversation about an opinion and both have the, have the disposition, I don't have to have it my way? Rarely happens, but it can happen. That's the instruction from Scripture, is to submit to one another. So if you are strong in an area, if you have a strong conscience, a liberated conscience in an area, that might mean for you yielding. Maybe you are going to have um, a couple of beers with your dinner one night as you had a family over, and you find out rather quickly they're not cool with that. Put the beer back in the fridge. Yield. Yield. That's okay. It's totally fine. Maybe someone, maybe you want to go out to eat lunch with somebody, and you say, hey, I'm going to go down, we're going to go down to the uh, Krishna temple. They've got a great vegetarian buffet, and they do. And that person says, ooh, eating in a temple, and you immediately recognize they're not cool with that. Submit. Burger King's fine. <laughs> Let's do Burger King. Uh, I love Burger King. That's great. So if you have a strong conscience, be willing to yield. And if you have a weak conscience, be willing to understand that not all people believe the same things you do on these issues. And that's okay. And perhaps sometimes that means you just have to avoid certain things. If you know there's a get-together where something's going to be going on that you don't have a clear conscience about, just don't go. That event's not for you. And that's okay. The Holy Spirit's working in you, protecting you. Be okay with that. So communicate and submit. Don't have to, you don't have to have it your way. And I want to highlight two things. I could preach on this all day, but we're, we're getting closer. Just hang in there. Um, two things I want to highlight about individual consciences, too. There's a difference between a free conscience and foolishness, because there are some people who perhaps are more like me, and to everything that isn't spelled out in Scripture, it's just like, oh, it's okay, <laughs> whatever, that's okay. Maybe you're, you have more of that type of approach to these issues. Well, there is a difference between having a free conscience and just acting like a fool, because if we're being so open, so unwilling to study things out, it can very easily get into the realm of foolishness. 
where a person is approaching you and saying, hey, I, I'm not sure about that thing. If you are going to write them off as a weak person, be careful because that person might just be wise. That might be a wise person that God has sent into your life to correct you in something because maybe you are engaging in foolish behavior. So there's a difference between a free conscience and foolishness. But there's also a difference between a bound conscience and willful ignorance. Perhaps you're on the other side of the spectrum, and you're thinking, I can't do that, I can't do that, and Christians can't do that, Christians can't participate in that, and you're just so worked up about everything. Every issue that's going on, just, you're just thinking, well, this can't be right because it's not the way I do it. Be careful, because if you've never taken the time to actually study it out, think through it, hear from other Christians, consider, pray, be open, then what are you doing? You're establishing a new law, aren't you? You've made yourself the law of the land, the standard. So there's a difference between a free conscience and foolishness, and there's also a difference between a bound conscience and just willful, prideful ignorance. Be careful with these things. These are like knives. They're really cool, but they can do a lot of damage, okay? So get knowledge, get understanding, and wrap it all up in love. And lastly, as we think corporately, as we all come together and decisions are made on behalf of the church body. How does this play out? We all have different consciences, don't we? We all have different opinions on things. Well, how does it play out when you've got to make a decision to represent all the people? Everybody coming together with their different opinions can create some interesting scenarios. This has happened to many churches in the realm of music. Music has divided and split and caused all kinds of arguments among God's people which it never should have, but it has. Perhaps today, if I, were to, if I would have opened my sermon with a Christian rap music video, perhaps some of you wouldn't have been able to be edified by that, but would have thought, ugh, I don't like that at all. So that makes things tricky, doesn't it, when we go to make decisions on behalf of the body. I can imagine in some of our meals together, there have been times with food or drink where certain people have been offended or astonished or amazed that something was done this way or that way or that this was the way it was. Holidays. Not all of us celebrate all holidays. Some people don't celebrate any holidays. Some, people, some of us celebrate holidays to varying degrees. How much emphasis we put on one holiday over and against another, that can cause disagreements in a church. So what is leadership to do? Well, our goal is to prioritize loving wisdom, even if it doesn't look that way sometimes. That's our heart, okay? <laughs> we want to prioritize loving wisdom in the body. Believing these two things. I'll end with these two things. Churches are not called to bind other people's consciences. I almost put this up there as one of the quotes from today. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, does a great job articulating the conscience and how important it is that the Lord alone binds the conscience, that no man should bind another person's conscience. It's never acceptable for a church to bind the conscience of someone else. It never is. It never is. So to give you an example, if some Christian, and we'll say a weak Christian, comes into our fellowship freshly saved and is totally freaked out by the coffee bar, Church leadership is not to say, shut it down. We are not to go to the point where we say, okay, let us have all of our decisions be defined by the weakest link every time. We can't do that. You can't do it. You can't bind people's consciences in that way. 
But you also have to prioritize wisdom, don't you? Does any, we could do a vote and see if we should shut down the coffee, but I don't think that'll go very well. But we're called not to bind other people's consciences. It's never acceptable. But at the same time, we're called to do what we can to protect spirit-bound consciences. And that is just a tricky game. I shouldn't say game. It's just life. It's very difficult. It's very challenging to know where the balance is, to know what to do, when to do it, knowing that, well, this group and that group. It's very difficult. So can it be done? Yes. In the church, it can be done because what do we have? We have gospel love. And if we all approach these conversations with gospel love, not demanding that we have it our own way, but demanding that no matter what we do, Christ be honored, that Christ be praised, that the gospel be magnified in our hearts. You know what's going to happen? It's going to be fine. It'll work out. We don't know the full totality of the story here in Corinth, how it all ended up playing out and how it all worked out. But what we can glean from the text, what we can hear Paul saying today, is that if fill-in-the-blank causes my brother to stumble... I'm not going to do it because I love him. Prioritize love for him. That's our goal. Okay? I want to preach more, but I should pray. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for our common salvation, for the faith and hope and peace and joy we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would build us up by your Spirit individually and together that we would encourage one another all the more, even as we see the day approaching. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.